Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brand. In this episode, we're discussing SST-134, the Sonic Youth album Sister. This is a big record in the indie world in uh, the late 80s. Really excited to get into this. Brant, you're probably more of a Sonic Youth fan, so it must have been a big thrill for you to interview our special guest tonight as well. Yeah, it was great. Steve Shelley's on the show. Great talking to him. Great guy. Uh, Thanks to Steve for being on. Yeah, no doubt. I was getting ready for the show this week and looking up, uh, we'll talk about kind of our source materials in a bit here on the history lesson, but um, Steve really covered a lot of very key information and uh, really adds a lot to the listen on this record. So I hope people uh, enjoy that. Yeah, sure. Uh, Do you have any spiels for the people before we get going on to that? I've got lots of spiels. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, Ryan, this is a good episode to do this because we talk about this a bit in the interview too. I watched the Desolation Center documentary. Yeah, it's streaming now, right? But you have to rent it. Is that right? Yeah, I just bought it. Oh, did you? Yeah. Like, like the, like, the streaming like, version of okay, it. So I can okay. Rewatch it, you know? Yeah, because I can't find the physical copy, but you bought it and just downloaded it or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And how is it? It's awesome, man. There's great footage of, like, the Pops, Minutemen, uh, Sonic Youth, Red Cross, Perry Farrell's band, Psycom. Some amazing oh, yeah. stuff in there. Uh, the the people that get interviewed are, like, a who's who from the scene. Linda Kite, Chris and Kirk, Kirkwood, Chuck Dukowski, Gary Tovar, Perry Farrell, Mike Watt. Janet and Steve Housden, uh, Blixa Bargeld, um, Hurley, Spot, Susie Gardner, Dave Markey, Thurston, Bob Burt, Lee Ronaldo, Michael Girard, Steve Shelley, uh, Jeff and Stephen McDonald. It's just insane. Wow. Yeah. The footage is awesome, and yeah, it's, it's a really good documentary. It's made by Stuart, Stuart Swayze. Everyone should check it out. It's great. Yeah, it's on my to-do list for sure. Okay, before I get into uh, my next segment, I'm just going to tell you that I, I jumped jumped around a little bit, went back a little bit, checked out a few of the things that you kind of were insisting that I make time for. So I did the, the two Chemical People albums, uh, So Sexist and... What's the other Tenfold one? Tenfold Hate. Tenfold, Tenfold hate. hate. So Sexist and Tenfold Hate, classic yeah. albums. Ryan, I think I'm ready to make a stand against the bad and the ugly. Yeah, <laughs> they're good, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're good. Great. I like tenfold, tenfold Hates better. They, they kind of remind me of Social Distortion a little bit, early Social Distortion, like Mommy's Little Monster I, era. Wow, I never would have made that connection, but why not? I, I think it's the vocals. Maybe, maybe. If you can get on the Chemical People ride, uh, do it. They're early, like they're, I think I've mentioned this before, like they're very, very, very first single. They remind me of the last their first single actually and they have that southern california uh surf beat in their pop punk sound it's awesome yeah okay so i listened to devo shout it's good it's not one i listen yeah. to too often i've maybe written it off as a later period devo album it's really good in that song that you you mentioned don't rescue me that's really good oh yeah and it has other good songs. It is totally written off by a lot of people, but a lot of people 
also feel very strongly about how good it is. Yeah, I get it was it was the one where it was the one where the Devo guys were going like the guitar is dead and they were going full synth, you know. Yeah. Okay, and then I jumped way way ahead to the Zetas record, the new one, The Cipher, and it's it's really good. Oh, I yeah. told you. Yep. Yeah, it's great. I got to check out some more of their stuff. Zetas is awesome. Yeah, I thought you'd like them too. Right on. If anybody wants to check it out, you mentioned it a few episodes back, but it's X E T A S. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of recommends, I, I got to give you some uh, street cred for that C average mm. recommend mm-hmm. on Kill Rock Stars. I checked that out and uh, that's a good one. Thanks for that. Yeah. Right on. Okay. I got to, I'm going to do my uh, get this shit off my phone segment. I took a week off. We're on the E section, Ryan. Can I name this one for you? Sure. Oh, and this even has like a loose. You were going to do this last week, and you said, no, the interview's too long. Let's not do it. We'll do it the week the, the week after. I'm glad you did, because my name for you for this segment, for the letter E, also has a tie-in to the sister album, because I was going to call this segment for you the E-Ticket Ride. Nice. Which, which is a song off of Ball Hog or Tugboat, which we'll get to uh, later on in the episode. Right on. Okay. As always, Ryan, feel free to to chime in on some of this stuff. Eggs Over Easy. Do you know that band? Don't. Okay. What is it? Well, uh, the album I listened to is Fear of Frying. They're considered pioneers of the pub rock movement in the UK, but they're from New York, actually. Uh, they moved over to the UK. Yep Rock released a comp a few years ago with both of their albums and a live set from 71. It's great stuff if you like... Uh, Kind of power poppy pub rock stuff, I guess. You mentioned one the other episode when you're doing the D's. It was D- the Ducks or something like that. Oh, what D- was it? Ducks Deluxe. Ducks Deluxe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are, th- are these guys in the same vein? Kind of. A little less bluesy, maybe. Okay. Okay. Uh, I listened to the new Exhumed Gruesome Split 10 Inch Twisted Horror. It's on Relapse. You wouldn't like it, Ryan, but it's cool. It's the first 10 inch I've bought in quite a while. Oh, I just bought a 10-inch today, oh, yeah. the uh, Melvin's Mud Honey uh, on AMREP. Oh, the one with my war on it. Yeah, that's going to be killer. Cool. Guaranteed. Okay, Exit Order, Seed of Hysteria. Uh, this is their second album, came out in 2017. They're a punk band from Boston on a label called Side 2, which has a bunch of newer Boston punk rock stuff on it. Um, Exit Order, you might like them, Ryan. Okay. Okay, speaking of the Melvins, here's a band called I Flies. I'm assuming that's named off of the uh, whichever album came off, Gluey Porch Treatments or Ozma, I can never remember which. But uh, it's this is their 2020 album on Thrill Jockey called Tub of Lard. It's their debut full length. They released an EP in 2019. It's noisy metal. Curious if, you, if you'd like it. You would probably like the music, but the vocals might be a deal breaker for you okay <laughs> are they super high and operatic nope. or are they growly or screamy little growly maybe yeah i'm not into growl vocals not super growly check them out eye flies you might really like them okay okay eerie is the band self-titled one and done album on tp records in 2016 some sludgy doom exine Cervenka, old wild wives tales uh, I have all of Exine's solo stuff. This one's a fave of mine from 1989. Love it. It's a great album. 
Dude, I was just rocking out to that new X album this weekend. It's so good. Yeah, it's hey? awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Like, they. Uh, it's amazing. Like, all those old X albums are great. I even like the later X albums, and I like John Doe so, solo, Exene solo. But it's like they've got this amazing production, amazing songs, and everyone in the band is like in their prime on this new X album, yeah. Alphabet Land. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. Evan Johns and the H-Bombs rolling through the night. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 1986 Alternative Tentacles Records. I got into them through our our friends in Huevos Rancheros. They cover Evan Johns' song, Barbecutie. Yep. That that record is insane. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. I Hate God. Take as needed for pain. Uh, You wouldn't like that. New Orleans kind of sludgy metal. Embrace 1987 Discord Records. It's basically Ian MacKay and The Faith. Not one I go back to often, but... It's good. It's good. Oh, it's good. Yep. Okay, a few... Heavily influenced by that band Empire, hey? Oh, re- the, really? The, gener- the Generation X uh, guys. Mm, didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, a few on the SS Tree. Elliot Sharp and Carbon. Amusia, I want to say, is the name of the album from 1994. It's noisy art rock with some really great guitar playing and here's one i've mentioned before in the podcast eyes adrift self-titled record from 2002 it's kurt kirkwood project before he reactivated the pups it's got this by bud gaw from sublime on drums and chris novoselic from nirvana on bass and some vocals too i don't like it as much as that volcano record that i've mentioned a few times but it's good okay Eternal Champion, The Armor of Ire. I checked this record out, Ryan, because Decibel Magazine does these like special editions, and they did one a couple months ago, basically right before the pandemic, called The Top 100 Greatest Metal Albums of the Decade, 2010 to 2019. Okay. This one was in there. They called it an absolutely flawless heavy metal record, and it's pretty good. It's number seven, number 77. On that list, there's a few things in the top ten you might like, though, Ryan. Do you like the bit in the top ten of the best metal albums of the 2010s? Yeah. Okay. Do you like the band Chemis? I've never even heard of them. You might like them. K H E M M I S. It's kind of. It's a little bit doomy. You might like it. Deaf Heaven. I doubt you like them. Carcass. I know you don't like. Trypticon. You won't like. Tribulation, Nails, you don't like. Power Trip, you're not really into, like, DRI or anything like that, hey? No, I don't really like crossover stuff. Okay, Paul Bearer, Sorrow and Extinction. You like Paul Bearer. Oh, yeah, man. Didn't I recommend them to you? Uh, well, I was already aware of them, but yeah, I, I knew that you liked them. You got them on a sub-pop single. Yeah, I got into them because of the sub-pop singles club. There was a Paul Bearer single on it, and I, I totally totally dug it and uh got their records okay well that one's number nine number 10 is this band yob our raw heart you might like yob actually is it y-o-b yep that's the top 10 there's some other good stuff in here too that you'd probably be into but or stuff that you already like maybe okay um empty flowers ryan yes i listened to the album six from 2012 on translation lost records 
by our podcast pal Randy Larson, who's a frequent guest on Mike Hill's Metal Matters podcast, which is always great. People should check that out, a little podcast shout out. Uh, The Eastern Dark, Where Are All the Single Girls? Oh yeah, they're awesome. That's the complete studio recordings, including their Soul 1986 album, Long Live the New Flesh, a bunch of singles and live stuff, seminal Australian punk punk rock. They do a Descendants cover on... I think that double LP comp, they do a Descendants cover, actually. Oh, cool. Effigies, Remains Non-Viewable. Yeah, man. Great touch-and-go comp with the early singles and the 12-inch EP tracks. Killer Chicago punk rock. I need to re-watch the You Weren't There documentary. It's been a while. Yeah. Estelle, A Guide in Time of Great Danger. 2003, mainly instro from Ireland, uh, I've mentioned the EP that they did with Mike Watt and Steve McKay before. Estel, yeah. Yeah. Elm, The Weight. It's on this Italian label, um, Bronson Recordings, that did the BC uh, Studios anniversary packages. Uh, and this is an Italian band, Elm. You might like them, Ryan. They kind of remind me of the band that you like, Overwhelming Color Fast. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, a little I, bit of a helmet vibe going. Hmm. Overwhelming color fast and helmet. See, I liked overwhelming color fast because they kind of reminded me of fluff. You might like this band, Elm. Okay. Okay. End result. Wand. More Chicago punk on Ruthless Records, 1985, produced by big black bassist Dave Riley. It's from the Albini era of Ruthless. It's good stuff. Okay. Last one. X models. Other Mathematics. Do you know X Models? I don't. It's the first of their three LPs. It's kind of no-wave-influenced post-punk from New York. You might dig them. Okay. I'll check it out. That's it. That's the E section. That, that's the E-ticket ride. That's the E-ticket ride. Nice. Yeah. I'll be interested to see what I come up with for the F section. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you have, Ryan? I've got, actually... Um, some SS tree editions, but I think they're one is one is for sure on the SS tree Two, actually two are for sure on an SS on the SS tree. One you might actually take issue with. I'm pretty sure you have not heard of two of three of these. And I'm interested to see what you think of the third one that I think you know about, but I'm going to start with this one. It's a single by a band called Rule of Thumb. You ever heard of them? Mm, nope. So Rule of Thumb, I'm not sure that they belong on the SS tree, but this single has guest vocals by Dave Smalley, and it's an awesome, you know, pop punk Dave Smalley tune. Um, and if you're if you're into the chemical people lately, you'd be into this single. It's it's very similar. It's recorded at uh, Inner Ear Studios. It's um it's like a Virginia DC area band, Rule of Thumb, but Dave Smalley on vocals here. Um, I think it I I would argue it fits on the tree. What do you think? Uh, while Cruz is on the SS tree, so Kay. by extension, then Dave Smalley is on the SS tree. Done. Perfect. There's one. I've got three for you. Second, the Gang Font. Featuring Interloper. Ever heard of them? Okay. Hmm. It sounds familiar, actually. So this has got Greg Norton 
on bass on this record. It's mm. it's avant garde, jazzy, proggy instro stuff from 1997. The Gang Font featuring Interloper, and it's on Thirsty Ear Records. I think you'd really like this. You would get your uh, your avant garde and prog on with this one. Um, it also has Craig Taborn on keys, Dave King from a band called Bad Plus on drums, and Eric Fratsky from a band called Happy Apples on guitars and electric bass as well. You dig this record, I guarantee it. My- I like the Bad Plus. Oh, cool! Yeah, the Gang Font featuring Interloper. Here's okay. my here's my third one on the SS tree. I'm pretty sure you know about this one, but I'm interested to see what you think about it. Wartime, fast food for thought. Yeah, it's Henry Rollins and Andrew Weiss. Yeah, have we yeah. ever mentioned that on the show before? Maybe when we interviewed Andrew. I don't I don't recall it coming up at all with him, but uh, it's Henry rapping. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's like uh it's pretty out there um as much as i want to like it it's not a great listen but what what are your thoughts on that one wartime is on the ss tree though yeah oh yeah for sure they are i i don't know i've had i have had it forever uh it's it's a novelty that's worth owning for sure yeah i kind of like it for the fuzzed out andrew weiss basin but not so much for the henry rapping yeah <laughs> that's it so it sounds like i was right you knew about the third one not about the other two i think you should check out the gang font featuring interloper though i'd be interested to hear what you think of that one yeah i'll see if i can track it down yeah 1997 on cd only that's it i'm ready to uh get my sister on right on history lesson part one so brant we've got steve on the show it's a great interview we had Sonic Youth on for the Evol record. So we're picking up with the sister record now. Where should we kick it off? Uh, well, do you want to throw it right over to Steve? Sure. Let's do that. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Steve Shelley. Steve, thanks for being on the show. Uh, you're welcome. Hi. How are you? Good. So we're talking about the Sonic Youth album Sister but I'm wondering if you can take me back to your time in the Crucifix. Tell me about that band and how it got started, how you got involved with it. That was a long time ago in Michigan. Um, I was still living in Midland, Michigan. And I think um, we, um, I had played at um, this club outside of Lansing, Michigan called Club Doobie. I was in like a, a new wave style band called the No Zone. And uh, this, this older guy um, by the name of Doc Dart had caught us. And somehow we started talking about music. Um, the bass player, whose name was Scott Baggerston, and myself uh, started talking with, uh, with Doc. And um, somehow, I don't know, we probably exchanged numbers, but we, um, we had a, um, a practice together. Um, we, we arranged a practice where Doc and his friend Terry um, came up to Midland, Michigan, and we played in, in Scott's basement. And that was sort of the, um, you know, the beginning of the Crucifix there. And Terry didn't play with us again, but he was an inspiration to Doc and, you know, I think to uh, the lyrics that Hinkley had a vision and some of the other 
some of the other things that, that Doc was working on at the time. So after this, this early uh, rehearsal, we, we started playing um, in Lansing. Uh, Scott and I would drive to Lansing and play with Doc. And uh, Doc uh, drafted his uh, cousin, Joe Dart. And Joe was like still in high school and kind of like a, a bratty kid. And, and uh, he wasn't much of a, a punk rocker at the time. He was more sort of uh, into um, corporate rock, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Mainstream rock. Right. And so we, we sort of schooled Joe <laughs> to play with us. And um, we started playing around um, around Lansing, you know, and, and Doc was this really extreme character, you know. There was a lot of really lovable things about Doc. Um, he was passionate about music. You know, I found at the time that um, a lot of these guys, uh, older guys that were into punk rock or post-punk music or whatever was going on at the time, they all kind of came out of prog rock. Right. <laughs> because they were sort of the record collector nerd from the late uh from the mid to late 70s so they they knew a lot about um uh genesis and king crimson and, and groups that some of the groups that did make a crossover into you know new music but um some of it uh was was very out of out of date in a way but but uh nevertheless doc had a magnificent record collection and um turned me on to a lot of music so, so we had a lot of really good times with Doc, but he was also um, a lot of trouble, and um, he, he had a troubled mind, and um, he had a real problem with the police. Oh. <laughs> and uh, as you can tell from our lyrics. Yeah, the lyrics the are song, real then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and that got in the way with, you know, with real life, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, um, and um, so, you know, it, it was a double-edged sword, but... Um, <laughs> You know, we had a lot of fun, but th there was a lot of misery involved, too. And the the band, not everybody in the band, but part of the band were really big drinkers. And and that caused a lot of misery, too, because sometimes we would argue about spending money on food versus beer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's never a fun uh, argument to be in, if, especially if you're if you're a non drinker. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, eventually. Um, we did a lot of things together. We, um, you know, we made this record for alternative tentacles and, you know, we were recorded by spot, which was really, um, a really big thing for me because I was such a Minutemen fan and, and right. meat puppets fan. And this was around the time that he's doing, um, I guess meat puppets too. And, but so we did, you know, we toured with the dead Kennedys and, you know, we, we played in Seattle, uh, you know, at the Moore theater before I went there with Sonic youth and, Right. You know, we did a lot. We played on this Rock Against Reagan tour, but it was also a miserable existence, you know, being in the band uh, with an alcoholic who who had a, an extreme temper when, you know, he, he could be a mean drunk. Mm. And so um, parts of it were difficult, but um, eventually I got driven out of the band by Doc and um, the bass player and I uh, quit the band and we um, we moved to New York. Okay. Now, I think I read somewhere that it was a toss-up for you. You were considering Austin. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I loved Austin. We had, we had gone there on this uh, Rock Against Reagan tour, and we had met all these people. Um, first most, this band called Meat Joy. Not everybody has heard of them, but they, um, 
they were a really important uh, group, or at least to me, in, in Austin, Texas. And of course, they knew everybody there. You know, we met, you know, Scratch Acid and Big Boys, and we were traveling with the Dicks already. And, you know, of course, we were Butthole Surfers fans. And so just Austin, Austin was like this really cool musical mecca, but also it wasn't intimidating if you were like a young person from Michigan where, um, you know, where you didn't think you'd get eaten up like by Los Angeles or, um, or New York City at the time. Right. And also San Francisco was, was in consideration for me at that time. I guess ultimately New York won um, because uh, Sonic Youth went on tour and they needed, uh, Kim and Thurston needed someone to, uh, to dog sit while they were away in uh, Europe. You were aware of Sonic Youth by this point, I'm sure. Yeah, I was a big, I was a big fan. I think Sonic Youth and um, the first two records by Jesus and Mary Chain, those were my favorite things at that time. You know, that's that's where I was getting off. That's what in, in inspired me. And so, yeah, I was a very big big fan. And I think, um, you know, Bad Moon Rising had had just come out, and so it was such a you know powerful record. Um, so, so yeah, it's an understatement to say I was a fan. Yeah. Fast forward, you get to join this band that you're a fan of. Fast forward me to the fall of 1986 when you're on the Flaming Telepaths tour with Firehose. What was that like? Well, that was a lot of fun because, um, like I said earlier, I was a really big Minutemen fan. And, and so, of course, you know, it was a strange, uh, strange trip that, you know, we finally, you know, met the minute man and you know lee was using d boone's amp the night that d died on the road right. um we, we were we were playing in la for this winter solstice concert with the, the swans and then you know mike watt comes out to the east coast and he stays with kim and thurston for a while and they convince him you know to keep playing music and and he he um he makes an appearance on evil um where, you know, he and I are like the rhythm section and on in the kingdom number 19. And also he's playing on uh, Bubblegum. And so then, you know, a year later, we're, uh, Mike has a new band with uh, George and uh, Ed from Ohio and, uh, and they're called Firehose, you know, it's so all of a sudden we're doing this, this tour with, with Firehose. And, you know, I get to see George Hurley play every night and, and Mike play every night. And it's, um it's just amazing. And, you know, and also they're just amazing characters. You know, San Pedro is a really big part of their personalities. And there's this uh, machismo with uh, with George and Mike that I don't think Sonic Youth had really experienced, you know. Like and so, you the know, working class we, thing, we, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and they would have arguments, you know, like we would uh, load out at the end of the night and George and Mike, you, you know, which is which is part of. Uh, why we love them so much, but they would get into these arguments, you know, out in the parking lot and they would kick each other out of the, the band, you know, you're out of the band, you know, no, you're out of the band. And, and, uh, or they would, it's my van, so you can't ride in the van, you know, but, but they were these two lovable characters who, you know, who, who were tied together by, by so many, by many things. And also being in these, these two really great bands. Right. But, um, but we saw them every night, you know, and of course, you know, you traveled, we traveled really closely together in those days and and you know mike used to give us a, a hard time um you know the first year that i was in sonic youth we would usually sleep on floors um 
after the show, you know, we, okay, who, who can put the band up? Right. And, and I guess you're familiar with that with doing all these podcasts about SSP band. Yeah. And um, we often stayed at, at, at party homes, you know, and, and the people, you know, you're just, you know, so tired and you have to get up and drive the next day. And, but the people want to stay up and drink and like, you know, talk to the band. And so often I would sleep in, in the van on, on, on that trip. And finally, the next year, when we were traveling with Firehose, we had enough money where we could like splurge for a Motel Six, and we would get two rooms. We would get one room with Lee, the sound guy, Terry Pearson, and myself, and we would take nights of who gets to sleep on the floor. Right. And then the other two guys would get you know the twin beds or whatever. And then in the other room, Kim and Thurston would share with our lighting person, Suzanne. And so there's three people in a room. And Mike Watt used to give us a hard time and he would call us bouge or bourgeois because, <laughs> because we were, we were like, Oh no, we got a, we got a motel six tonight down the road. You know, we're spending, you know, back then it's like $23 a room or something, you know? Right. And so, um, he, you know, so we used to have to, you know, deal with Mike and, uh, and you know, it's Mike's world and we're, we're just <laughs> along for the ride. So, <laughs> I, I just read, finished reading Mark Lanigan's book, and he talks about touring with Firehose and having Watt just crash into their room and just, you know, just I'm sleeping here tonight, <laughs> and kind of just. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah, yeah. And, and and Mike is a peculiar guy where um where um even when he's at a really nice place, he tends to um to sleep low. Like often, <laughs> often you'll find uh, Mike kipped out on the floor or whatever. Right. <laughs> okay. Now, I also read that you rehearsed in the East Village at a space that was described as extremely small. Now, would that have been rehearsing for the recording of this album, or is this after the album's recorded and you're rehearsing for tour? I, I guess what I'm asking is, where were the songs written? Were they written on the road? Were they written in this rehearsal space? How did it all play out? We didn't write on the road very much at all. We would work on things on the road, but most of the writing was done several days a week um, where we would, we would practice four to five days a week, um, usually on weekdays wow. um, at a rehearsal joint. So um, I w I'm not sure if everybody had a job in 86, 87, but I still had to work in restaurants and, you know, as a dishwasher and, you know, a, you know, backroom cook or whatever I could do at the time just to, to keep the music habit going. But um, the space that we um, worked on the sister material was on uh, Mott Street, uh, just below uh, Houston. And um, it was headquarters for the Conk label. Okay, yep. And above it, um, towards the end of our stay at the studio, uh, a new bar came into town. It was called Max Fish. And that became like a hipster uh, uh, bar for a long, long time. And before Max Fish was there, there was not much in that neighborhood. I guess I was living in, in um, possibly in Hoboken already. And, um, and I used to have to cruise down Houston Street and then take a right at Katz's onto, you know, uh, actually Ludlow is the street, not, not Mott's, excuse me, uh, get down to Ludlow. And that's where, um, that's where we would rehearse. Um, it was kind of a um, uh, iffy na neighborhood. Uh, um, as I made that turn uh, past Katz's, I, I kind of, you know, was aware of where I was and, you know, hurry up and get Pick to up the, the pace um, a little bit. 
<laughs> yeah, pick up your face and jump down the hole because it was in one of those, um, you know, sub basements where you you'd go in through the um, through the sidewalk, uh, you know, stairway or entrance or whatever. Right. This was your rehearsal space, though. Like you were leaving your gear there and everything. We left gear there. Yeah, yeah. We had probably two or three by the time leading up to the, the space on Ludlow. Um, the first one would have been off of Houston Street when I first played with the guys. But this one was, was on Ludlow, and it was beneath the area that later became Max Fish. And I think we also um, we, we filmed uh, the Beauty Lies in the Eye, a video down there. Oh, really? And, um, yeah, yeah, Kevin Kerslake came, and that was the first time that we'd had, like, a it was a very, um, you know, indie production, but it was the first time that we had a crew. You know, so there there was like, you know, Kevin and I don't know, you know, three or four people in the crew. And that was, you know, that was big time. It mustn't have been that small then. <laughs> it wasn't a tiny space. No, yeah. no. And there was still room for a record, you know, a record label office. Right. Conk was um, related to Richardson after he moved on to, um, you know, from Sonic Youth. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Conk label. Okay. Uh, so for the album Sister... I guess much has been made about, you know, the Philip K. Dick kind of connection and the in the title and some of the song lyrics, you know, a lot of writing about how it was inspired by his writing. I've heard it referred to as a concept album. Do you consider it a concept album? Was that something you guys talked about? No, we we, we never never discussed uh it being a concept record at, at all and um and in fact, none, none of the records were ever discussed as being a concept record right. while, while they were being made. Um, no, it was just, you know, it was fascination of, of Philip K. Dick at the time. Of course, Thurston, you know, le leading the way a great, a great deal on that. And in those days, you know, we spent a lot of time in the van and, um, you know, we're playing the tape deck and you're passing around paper backs in the, in the van, you know. So there was always a score of Philip K. Dick books. And um, I had been a fan, of course, since, uh, you know, the Blade Runner movie. But I was definitely not as deep into it as, as Thurston was at the time, um, where he was actually researching Philip K. Dick himself. You know, he knew he knew about the author where, um, you know, that was not the case for myself. Right. But so definitely, you know, Philip K. Dick is, is, is a part of what's going on. But but not not a concept album, you know, and just um, you know, sister loosely taken from uh, from Phil K. Dick's uh, what was a sibling that was um, that, that his sister was uh, was uh, passed away at, at birth or right. something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. You know that stuff was never um, so precious or so discussed uh, with with the band. You know, it, it, we went with the intuition a lot, and sometimes. You know, Thurston or someone would say, "What about this?" and and usually it would be like, "Yeah, that's great." Yeah. What about musically? The move away from I don't know if this is accurate, but away from like the no wave, more dissonant sounds to more of a having more of a rock or hardcore influence come into the music. Was that something a conscious decision? Was it something you guys would have talked about, or was it just this is what we're writing? Uh. I don't think we ever really talked about. Or do you even you know, think that's accurate? Is that even accurate to you? What I just, what I just said. Well, I don't really spend too much time just <laughs> describing the music. Right. You know, I, I would say it's you know it's 
it's what came through, you know, after the four of us got our hands on it, you know, it, it kind of went through the Sonic Youth blender at the time. Right. Um, you, you know, I think to some degree, maybe Thurston and the band thought that they were getting, uh, this young hard hardcore drummer, you know, to join the band. <laughs> yeah. And like that was like, you know, and that was like the last thing in my mind to like play in a hardcore band. Yeah, you know, it's right. like I loved Meat Puppets too. You know, it's yeah. like I loved the man. It was like you know, um, you know, fast, energetic music w- was was great, but I-, I was you know looking you know for something. I mean, at the same time, I loved Neil Young as much as uh as as any post punk music, you know, you know. Right. So I, I don't think any one person can, you know, unless they're the lead singer, can make a band uh, be, become more melodic or you know. It's right. Just, it was just the way you know. It was what we were listening to and what you know what you know how things came out at the time. What you know what we were inspired by and and how how the four of us performed together. You, you know, we never really said like never ever you know even years years and years later that like oh this this one's going to be more commercial or right. this one's going to be melodic. you know i read that about like dirty sometimes and i'm just like where were these people when we were in the room you know this this, this like this never happened it right. never never happened usually you know <laughs> you know the best moments are like you're jamming together and you kind of lose um concept of time you know those that those were the moments, you know, you know, no, no one ever said like, let's, let's make this one more melodic, you know? Yeah. You you were trying to get lost, you know? Okay. You go in to record this stuff at Sear Sound on 16 track. It's listed as March and April of 1987. Do you remember these sessions at all? Was it a day here, a day there? Was it a marathon session? Do you, do you have any recollection of, of the recording? My recollection is that we would have gone up there uh, for days on a row. Um, you know, there's always uh, your first day is always your slowest day. And so you you spend a lot of money on that day. So I c- couldn't imagine us going home, taking the equipment, and then coming back and having to set up again. Yeah. So definitely, you know, set up and you do the basics. You know, maybe you took a few days off and did the mixing. But, um, you know, in this you know, as each record was at this time, this was probably our biggest production um, to date. Uh, the band had just done two records with Martin BC, and one of those, which I was there for, and and then, you know, going to this Midtown studio um, that was, it was really, it was a really a bizarre place. You know, Sheer Sound is, you know, sometimes described as a lo-fi studio, and it's, it's anything but that. It, it was the most hi-fi studio possible. You know, it was run by by this genius, you know, named Walter Sear, and he he had grown up uh, in you know he had grown up through the music industry in New York City. You know, coming from the uh, the pit orchestra, he was a tuba player okay. back in the old days. <laughs> he was a crony of uh, of uh, what's his name, Robert Moog. Okay. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He he. Um, he was the definition of high fidelity He in his studio. And so, um, you know, we went there and, and, but it was very strange because it was, um, it had seen better days and, um, they were now using it, uh, to cast and to, to direct, um, really super B grade movies, sort of, um, sexploitation, uh, gore movies. 
It was engineered by Bill Titus. I've also read that you're perhaps were or maybe still are unhappy with the drum sound you got on this record. Where does it sit with you now? I haven't listened to it in a long time. Yeah, I never, I never liked it. Um, I don't know why. And and uh, some people, you know, back in the day, described it. Well, that's because you recorded on, you know, tube gear, and and, and actually, that's the direct opposite. You know, the drums should have uh, should have sounded, you know, amazing. Yeah. Uh, with all this tube gear, with all this like um, great vintage gear, I, I I don't know why it happened that way. I mean, me. Um, there was a little bit of a disconnect between us and, and the engineer. And um, it, could, it could have been uh, one of the things that, um, you know, that was caused by, by that, you know, or right. was a result of that. You did go back to the studio many years later and record again. Was it, had it been upgraded at all when you went back? Yeah, well, no, not that there was anything wrong ever with the studio, but it had moved. They moved to a new location. Okay. And, um, it's a top-notch studio. It's one of the best studios um, in the world, and de definitely in in New York City. And I think it's still running. But um, it, you know, it's funny because sometimes I do read that you know it was a lo-fi event. It was it was never a lo-fi event. You know, this guy, this guy was meticulous with his um, with his craft. You know, with 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 what he did there. You're talking Walter. Yeah, Walter. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, Walter kind of shooed us aside when we came in. He was sort of, you know, Walter was like, you know, <laughs> really old, like, yeah. you know, like 55 or something, you know, <laughs> I'm joking there, you know, and, and, uh, and he was like, oh, well, you want to work with the younger engineer, which was this guy, Bill Titus. And, and in a way, I think through the years, we really grew to appreciate Walter and we kind of always wondered, like, what if? You know, Walter had been the engineer, right, you know, right. Did but, it... um, Walter, he thought that, you know, he wasn't really ready for, you know, these, these young kids or whatever. Walter did program some Moog synth for the album. It's true. Yeah. Right. He, um, one day he showed us, uh, the, um, the really old fashioned Moog and, and I think I wound up, you know, contr controlling some of the swishes or whatever that that are at the end of uh, kill time there. Um, okay. But that was all, you know, set up by Walter who, who, who gave us sort of a, a tutorial that day. <laughs> okay. It was a wonderful time. We, we, we loved him. Uh, um, you know, I just, I just can't say enough good things about, about Walter. He was really wonderful. You did do some other cool things on the record. Like you're, you're hammering some metal sheets and stuff like that. Was Bill, was he down with trying stuff like that? What was he like to work with on some of the more experimental ideas? I think he let us do our thing. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, he's probably rolling his eyes, you know, um, while a lot of that was going on. He was a sweetheart, too. But, you know, he just um, he he wasn't uh, sold yet on what was going on, you right. know. <laughs> and he was old school, you know. We actually... Um, had to have discussions with him if, if we were allowed to touch the board or not, because, you know, this is a, like a Broadway based the studio. And it's very much like uh, the engineer touches the board and the artist, you know, stay back and, you know, right. but um, you know, if you're going to make a record with Lee, um, he's going to get a, want to get in there and, and uh, move his faders up and down. And, and uh, you know, and so we had discussions about things like that. You do a crime cover 
on the record. And on the liner notes, it says Crime Decipher by Byron Coley. What did he decipher? The lyrics? I imagine that must must mean that he um, that he deciphered the the lyrics from the from the forty five for yeah. Thurston. Yeah. Yeah. The cover art. It was created using images supplied by the entire band. Do you correct? Do you know which images you supplied? Yeah, um, I think uh, the Madonna um, Madonna Inn might have been one of my postcards, and the uh, the Shetland cows. Uh, those were postcards that I had sent to you know to friends while we were on tour. Oh, okay. That was Thurston's concept, as, as far as I remember, and. I think it was somewhat inspired by the birthday party's bad seed EP, uh, which we were uh, really big fans of. Right. What happened after the record came out? Who did you end up touring with? And was it, was it a SST tour? I'm assuming. Huh? I think you went to well, Europe if I'm, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's, is it too early for these immortal souls to be playing with us? We played with them, but that might not have been till 88 or 89. Um, but it could have been the, these immortal souls with, with you know, Roland S. Howard right. uh, from the birthday party and, and our good friend Epic Soundtracks on drums. Oh, boy, I'm trying to remember, you know, just before, um, because, of course, the next time out, it's with Mud Honey and, and Laughing Hyenas and, and everyone. Right, yeah. I'm not, I'm not positive who, okay. who we played with in 87. So, Steve, there's a bunch of great stuff on your Bandcamp page, including some great stuff from this era. The Live in Yugoslavia just went up. Live at City Gardens, the Hold That Tiger albums up there. Can we expect more stuff from uh, the Sonic Youth archives? Oh yeah, absolutely. There, there's there's hundreds of hours of tapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we we're going. You know, now with the pandemic, uh, people are are at home, and so um, I'm spending a lot of time going through this stuff. And then I, you know, if I find a good one, I send it around and see if everybody. Uh, is up for it being uh, um, available on Bandcamp, and and that's what we've been do- been doing the last last couple months. I've I've got one coming out um, this Friday, but it's a it's a few years later than than eighty seven. Okay, it's just a total treasure trove for Sonic Youth fans. So, oh, th- thanks. Um, I was gonna say Lee and I are especially happy about that hold that tiger because we didn't realize that um that it had been um you know, at the wrong speed for, for like 30 years. Because <laughs> we went to put that up on uh, Bandcamp a couple months ago, and uh, someone, you know, listened to us on Bandcamp and said, you know, hey, guys, this, this one's a little fast. And, and we listened to it, and we we're like, oh, my God, it's still fast from when uh, Byron had actually sped it up to fit it onto one single LP back in 91 oh, uh, when okay. <laughs> Byron first pressed it. Right. Yeah. And we, we thought through the years, because we've made it available on digital and, and iTunes and all that, that, and we thought that, oh, we must have fixed it through the years, but it, it was never um, speed corrected like it is it is today now. What about the Daydream Nation movie, the Lance Bangs project? Um, do you know when we might get a chance to see that on streaming or uh, available to purchase? Yeah, um, hopefully... Um, hopefully this year or next. Yeah, it's definitely an easy one to finish. Um, it just has to get put on the list and, and, and finished off. There's a few things that we'd like to release as DVDs or streaming or whatever um, it's going to be next. Um, right now, though, I'm, I'm, helping, um, um, I'm helping the Desolation Center guys put together a double LP oh, wow. soundtrack 
for for that movie. And um, so, you know, we hope to include, uh, you know, the Minuteman and Me Puppets and, of course, Sonic Youth and Red Cross and, and Neubauten and Savage Republic. So that's sort of the one thing I'm looking at right now as far as manufacturing. Wow. But, um, you know, when we are able to manufacture again, but definitely the Daydream uh, movie by, by Lance Banks would be a great one to, um, to finish up and get out there. The Desolation Sender documentary is great. This compilation you're talking about, would it be stuff from the performances or is it studio track? No, only from only from the shows that Stuart promoted, the Desolation Center shows, which include, you know, the um, uh, Joy at Sea and, and uh, several different desert gigs. And also um, this winter solstice uh, gig that I mentioned right. that um, yeah. that um, we played with the Swans and Sacrament Trust um, in 1985. Right. Yeah. Okay, uh, you've been doing some Q&A sessions for the Daydream Nation screenings? Sure, yeah. yeah. What's that been like? You know, that's been a lot of fun. Um, it's been a lot of fun to see the audiences have, you know, you know um, before the pandemic, you know, people could get together and do this sort of thing. It, it was fun to see an audience uh, um, sit down and listen and watch something, you know, uh, together, you know. Yeah. Uh, instead of people watching things on their phones or their laptops and, you know, all separately. So it was a good way to get people together. And and um, and um, we had really good guests and we had different guests, uh, you know, depending on what city we were in. And, and so we, we had a lot of really varied nights um, of discussion and, and, you know, and Q&A and whatever. Also, the program itself would change from night to night. You know, often if Aaron and I found ourselves in a, in a city where we had a good piece of, uh, a film from back in the day, we would, we would open up the show with, with, um, you know, something from that city or that area. So, um, cool. yeah, it was, it was really fun. It was kind of an ever changing, uh, a night, you know, some nights I, I'd be presenting the shows with Lance and some nights with Aaron and some nights, you know, Thurston would be there and, you know, um, all, all the members of Sonic Youth, uh, appeared at, at different points on, on the trip. So it was really, really fun. What else are you up to? What about music, Steve? Are, are you uh, working on music at all? Well, mostly just on these Bandcamp pages right now. I'm not actually playing music, um, yeah. although I'm thinking about it all the time. You know, we, we um, finally got this Wild Rats uh, music up on Bandcamp, which, again, includes Mike Watt and, you know, Ron Ashton from the Stooges and Thurston. Right. And I've got my own label called Vampire Blues, and and uh, we've been finishing projects that kind of got lost along the wayside, and um, and putting up reissues and and uh, unheard unheard music on on that Bandcamp page. So um, just you know, been doing as much as we can while while staying home, and you know, really missing traveling and and playing shows, and uh, you know, until that happens, we're working on stuff like this. Well, I guess the good news for Sonic Youth fans is uh, you'll be working on going through the archives. <laughs> we are going through the archives, yeah. I mean, I mean, the better news would be if we were all safe and we could um, we could go meet each other right now, but um, we'll have to wait for that right now. Yeah. All right, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Thanks very much. Right on. Thanks, Steve. That was great. Yeah. I mean... Like I said, he covered a lot of the stuff that uh, super, super relevant to uh, to this record. 
I'm really glad though you started asking about the crucifix. Yeah. Because <laughs> as you know, uh, I really, I still love that band, and I always, whenever I get the chance, uh, pump up their one album, the LDEI. It's a later era one, but it's it's awesome. Have you ever heard of any of Doc Corbin Dart's solo stuff on Alternative I've got a Tentacles? solo record of his on Alternative Tentacles. It's uh, I don't yeah. go back to it as much as I do the the band stuff. Yeah, it's pretty good though. There's one called Patricia that's pretty good. That's the only one I've heard. That's that's the one I've got. Yeah, but I mean like the self-titled Wisconsin, Our Will Be Done. They're all great. They're all classic. But even the the later one, LDI, love that one. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, here's what I picked out from the interview. Um, I want to hear this band Meet Joy that he mentions. That he met from Austin on the Rock Against Reagan tour. I've never heard that band name. Yeah. Or it's never or it's never registered anyways. From Texas, right? Yeah. I wonder if they're in that book, Texas is the Reason, that new book... Uh, the, he talks about the night D. Boone died, where they were playing with Swans and Saccharine Trust. That's in the Desolation Center movie, actually. Okay. He talks a little bit about the work that they're doing on their Bandcamp page and some of his other ones, which is really cool. Uh, if any, if nobody's been over to the Sonic Youth one, you know, get on it. There's so much great stuff on there. But the Wild Rats one that he's worked on. Yeah. Do you know who the Do you know who the Wild Rats are, Ryan? I do. I do. I do. Um, and I've checked it out. I'm still bummed that there's no physical copy, of course. And I bet you, you knew I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if anybody doesn't know who they are, they formed in 1997 to record tracks by the Stooges for the film Velvet Goldmine. Uh, they banged off the Stooges songs, and then they decided basically to do an album. There's some originals, some instrumentals, a couple pretty things covers. It's Ron Ashton, Thurston Moore, Steve, Don Fleming, Sean Lennon, Jim Dunbar, and Mark Arm on vocals. Yeah. And the album's really good. It's worth checking out for sure. And it's on their Bandcamp page. It's Wild, W-Y-L-D-E, Rats, R-A-T-T-T-Z. And then his label, Vampire Blues, has some great stuff, uh, including that Overpass record, Manhattan Beach. Ooh, love Overpass. Our listeners who are fans of Slovenly should check that out if they haven't. Yep. Uh, Mosquito, Steve's project with Jad Fair. Uh, a bunch of records actually by that band Fuck that we mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, a cool unreleased project he did with uh, this band Disappears. A couple records by Spectre Folk. Uh, a band he played in that has a bit of a Velvets vibe going on. There's some cool stuff on there. Vampire Blues, Steve's label and Bandcamp page. Some of the books, Ryan, we're going to be using here. You have the uh, Goodbye 20th Century by David Brown. Uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life, of course, by Michael Azrad. Psychic Confusion, The Sonic Youth Story by Stevie Chick. Confusion Is Next by Alec Fogue, The Sonic Youth Story. And the best of the bunch, for my money, Kim Gordon, Girl in a Band by Kim Gordon. Great stuff. Yeah, I love that book too. I wish Kim would write some more stuff. She's got way more to tell. Yeah, I wish someone else from the band would write a book. Yeah. That would be cool. So I'll get us going here, Ryan. Here's kind of an overview from Alec in The Confusion is Next book. 
Sister sounds like tomorrow's music recorded yesterday. A time capsule filled to the brim with the detritus of 50s pulp science fiction, 60s acid rock, 70s punk obscura, and topped off with a warm dollop of sheer pop innovation that even today seems ahead of its time. Sister effortlessly flits back and forth between the archaic and revolutionary. It also divides old Sonic Youth from new Sonic Youth. That's fair. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. It definitely does. And it definitely, this album does not sound dated. No, no, it not doesn't. Not even close. It sounds, it sounds timeless, like very modern as well. Yeah. Uh, a big part of it we touched on in the interview is uh, the Philip K. Dick connections. Yeah. Philip Kindred Dick was born 1928, died 1982. So about five years before this record came out. He's a science fiction writer, 44 published novels, and around 120 short stories. Most famously, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, A Scanner Darkly, The Man in the High Castle. Pretty troubled personal life. He was married five times. There was some accusations of physical abuse. He had a history of drug abuse and suicide attempts. He died at age 53 from a stroke, uh, four months before the release of the movie Blade Runner, which was based on one of his novels. Certainly a history of mental illness, uh, hallucinations, paranoia, belief in extraterrestrials, and conspiracy theories. Thurston has, has said that he liked the fact that Dick's writing technique was based on real-life experiences and that he spoke of writing while in a trance-like state. Here's a quote. I always liked the idea that writing lyrics was more of a subconscious attitude in a way. It really came to fruition while reading Philip K. Dick for a couple of years and also while writing Sister. And here's Kim from the Girl in a Band book. In 1987, Thurston and I were both reading Philip K. Dick, whose writing was has more in common with philosophy than science fiction, mm -hmm. and whose descriptions of schizophrenia were better than those of any, any medical journal. And remember, she talks about this a lot in her book, her brother Keller suffers from a form of schizophrenia. Yeah. She goes on, Philip K. Dick had a twin sister who died shortly after she was born, and whose memory plagued him his whole life, which is maybe how and why our new album ended up being called Sister. We never decided this, of course. Everything between us always had an air of undiscussed ambiguity about it. So, as you mentioned, we've had a few other Sonic Youth albums between Evol, because they kind of went backwards, but March 86, they record Evol. It comes out May of 86. This one was recorded in March, April of 1987 at Sear Sound, released June of 1987. Pretty amazing how quickly they turned these records around after they were recorded. Yeah. Yeah. It was recorded on 16-track tape using old-school valve and cylinder technology. There's a sister interview LP put out by Blast First in 1987 with an interview by Byron Coley. Uh, the whole band's interviewed at Kim and Thurston's Eldridge Street home. Uh, they talk about for the first time in the studio, they all played live for the basic tracks with way fewer overdubs than usual. They say in the interview, it's the closest they've come up until this point to approximating their live sound. They call it sparky and live. Hmm. Here's Kim again from her book. 
I loved making Sister and Sear Sound in Midtown Manhattan, the oldest recording studio in New York, was the perfect place to record it. Following Evol, we wanted a rawer, more immediate sound, and Sear, with its huge collection of vintage analog tube equipment, including a great 2-inch 16-track, was the fulfillment of our sound fantasies. The lousy acoustics of the room were good for the guitars, but muffled the drums, which disappointed Steve to no end. Yeah, he didn't seem to remember that in the interview, but it is mentioned, like, almost every one of these books mentions how he wasn't super happy with his drum sound. Yeah. It's not the best drum sound, but it works for the for the album, for sure. It's it's just really flat, you know? Yeah. It's it's not it doesn't have a lot of you know, reverb on it or whatever. In the interview he calls Walter Sear the definition of high fidelity. Yeah, interesting that him and his wife Roberta made those B movies too, hey? And had apparently had B movie horror posters on the walls of the studio there which i'm sure added to the ambiance also yeah. interesting that walter and robert moog invented the moog synthesizer whoa mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow yeah that's interesting for sure here's stevie chick from his book there was more method to their chaos now a discipline that was audible and thrilling no longer fighting against their thrift store equipment they'd achieved a fluency in their guitars, unique foreign tongues, which, though broken, detuned and distorted, sang in a voice both strangely familiar and deliriously alien. Their sense of structure was tighter, though still stretched to inventive lengths. In early 1988, Sister made number 12 in the Village Voice's influential Paz and Jot poll. It eventually sold around 60,000 copies. Robert Christigau, the of the Village Voice, who had a bit of a running battle with the band over some bad reviews he'd given them, finally uh, gave the album an A. He called it an album worthy of their tuning system. Here's a review that came out in spin around the time of the DGC reissue. Following a series of clanging albums, Sonic Youth turned their Catholic block hammering into human heartbeats and their feedback into lullabies on this bleary guitar classic. Schizophrenia is as strange as angels. Toughnarl spins a dizzying edge, and Cotton Crown is just like heaven. Let's let's go over to the tracks, Ryan. History lesson part two. I'll just mention Ryan. This came out on LP, CD, and cassette on SST, and then a bunch of other labels. Blast first, most notably in the UK. Some other cool and influ- influential labels like Agogo in Australia, Flying Nun in New Zealand, and of course it was reissued on DGC in 1994 when uh, Geffen bought Sonic Youth's SST back catalog. Yeah, that's all I have it on is the Geffen CD re-release. Is there the tracks are the same though, right? The Geffen one adds on Miss uh, Master Dick. Master, oh yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I have all I have is my original SST cassette. It's all I've ever nice. owned this on. So nice. Track one, side one, schizophrenia, a band staple for many years, a set opener. Kim has said she wanted to name the record schizophrenia. Uh, Steve starts the song and the album. Then Lee and Thurston come in in a. They're slightly out of tune, which is kind of a signature sound of theirs yeah. a little bit. Yeah. 
I'm going to be referencing a few articles I found out online, like uh, this one from Jake Cole in spec, uh, a blog called Spectrum Culture. Uh, he has said, he said, about a friend's troubled sister whose manic episodes are downplayed by her brother. In the second half, Kim assumes the role of the, of the sister. Here's Kim from her book. Thurston wrote the lyrics, somehow making the words sound as though they were mine. Even though, though the song wasn't explicitly about Keller, the Philip K. Dick references throughout Sister always made me feel they were. Mm-hmm. Like... Her brother says she's just a bitch with a golden chain. That references an incident that happened to Philip K. Dick on February 20th, 1974. He was at home and he received a delivery at his home from a girl with a golden necklace. And as the sun glinted off the gold, the reflection caused a pink beam of light uh, that mesmerized him. He believed the, the beam of light imparted wisdom and clairvoyance and he also believed it to be intelligent. He wrote about the series of visions he saw following this in a book called Valis, which was a trilogy of books. It's all pretty involved and obviously way more detailed than this. But this is one of the books Thurston was reading, or the band was reading at the time. So Philip K. Dick had a, a book called Valis? Yes. Ah, I wonder if that's the uh, the Van Conner. Uh, oh, I would, I'd be willing to bet it is. Yeah, for sure. the inspiration for his band. Yeah. Here's uh, Thurston in a Spin article from this era. Philip K. Dick understood and wrote about the schizophrenic experience better than anybody. Here's Kim from the same interview. He's like a modern philosopher. His books can be depressing, but I feel very centered whenever I read him. This is obviously a Sonic Youth classic. The middle section into the crazy Tom's noise part is like classic Sonic Youth. Yep. I always love the whammy bar action at the end of this song. All right, track two, I Got a Catholic Block. Here's Alec in Confusion is Next. Thurston's nod to his Catholic upbringing. Thurston, I always liked the use of Catholic boy imagery, the starched white shirt and a plaid tie, rather than goth imagery as punk device. Here's Stevie Chick. Catholic Block rushes of discordant guitar racing at minor threat velocity matching a gleefully psychotic lyric that proved that thurston like every good catholic boy knew the threat of damnation only makes the sin taste that much better <laughs> the song starts with what sounds like a guitar being plugged into an amp uh, some cool guitar interplay between lee and thurston i like the beat steve is playing in the verses yep yep the come down at the end is also a total Sonic Youth move, where the where the song comes down. Yeah, this is this is the type of Sonic Youth that I got into. It's uh, it's a highlight for me. This is the yeah. kind of stuff that got me hooked and kept me hooked, rather than the earlier records. Yeah, this sounds like later Sonic Youth, like Goo and Dirty and yeah, any Daydream Nation a little bit. Exactly, and I said that on the last uh like on the evolve episode you know i didn't start out with the early albums i got hooked on goo and dirty i'll admit it yeah same with me here's jake cole again from that blog shelly overwhelming even leon thurston with his fury on this track he's the secret star of the entire record 
Yeah, he definitely comes into his own on it. And a lot of writers really define this as like Steve's record, you know, where that really brought the Sonic Youth sound together. And um, I was actually checking out some of the live footage of of them, not uh, of at this time, but playing these songs and s- Steve's drumming like on this song, for example, it sounds easy but it's it's deceptively simple sounding it's not when you watch it yeah no he's a crazy drummer yeah all right track three beauty lies in the eye this one actually has thurston on bass here's stevie stirs a mood akin to some broken-hearted brill building ballad churning guitar turbulence accenting a bereft lyric bemoaning a spent life and here's alec from confusion is next the rare case of a musical hook devised by Lee that was later taken over by Kim. Her combustion-themed lyrics, Do You Want to See the Explosions in My Eye, complement the diffuse instrumentation making for a love song that manages to find grandeur in violent affection. This one they did a video for. Kevin Kerslake did the video. Uh, he also did Shadow of a Doubt off of Evol. Steve mentions it was shot in their rehearsal space, and then they, in post-production, they kind of put some psychedelic touches on it. I've always loved this song. I love the ambience of it. The percussion in the background is great. The acoustic guitar, some wah, I hear, on the bass. Kim's vocal is killer. I love at the end when she's going, Hey, Fox, come here. Hey, sweetheart. Come here, sugar. Great song. Love it. Track four. Stereo Sanctity. Apparently they did a video for this one that was never widely released. There is a grainy black and white video on YouTube with footage of the band. I'm not sure if it's the official video that they did for this or not though. They also talk about videos for the record on that Blast First interview album and this one isn't mentioned so Mm. I'm not too sure. Here's Alec. Borrows Dick's pseudoscientific vocabulary to imagine a world where electronic currents run through everything. It's also one of Sonic Youth's first perfectly crafted pop songs, written within the set of musical techniques created by the band. The way it speeds ahead, lurches to a stop, only to take off again, all while dropping fragments of rattling, hissy guitar distortion implies an implausibly yet spooky War of the Worlds notion of a supernatural vision. Yeah, and they, someone yells out, I think it's Thurston, yells out seven at the beginning because that's what take it is, right? Okay. I thought that I thought that was a maybe a Phil K. Dick reference or something. No, um, I can't remember what book I read it in. I think it's actually the, the Goodbye 20th Century book. Bill Titus was, was trying to figure out like, what version of the song or what take of the song it is because it just sounded so noisy and out of tune and he just couldn't tell and he was asking the band to basically yell it out and go you know six seven and this is the one that they put on the record the seventh take well you can hear it sounds like probably him in a talkback mic at the start of the songs kind of questioningly saying seven and then thurston repeats him seven yeah apparently some of the lyrics are lifted from philip k dick books specifically the line i can't get laid because everyone is dead 
Love the huge glissandos in the midsection of this song. Another album highlight for sure. And then we end side one with Pipeline, Kill Time, Lee's vocal on the album. Here's Alec. Lee, as it turns out, possessed the only naturally melodic voice. Pipeline helped define him as the band's time traveler. Rather than adhering to a standard verse-chorus-verse-pop structure, it accelerates as if being chased. Lines such as, Run 10,000 miles and then think of me seem to allude to the cyberspace of William, William Gibson's Neuromancer, which is another sci-fi classic the band was passing around at the time. This is the one where you can hear Thurston playing the Walter Sear programmed Moog at the end. Or Steve, I'm not sure who plays it. Uh, I always love when Lee sings. He sings some of my all-time favorite Sonic Youth tracks. So, Apparently the lyrics were based on a poem by one of his friends. Um, I think it's Tom DeJesu or DeJesu. Okay. He's having marital problems at the time. So... His friend wrote the poem about it, and Lee copped the, uh, I guess, kind of the theme behind it for the lyrics for this song. Okay. Flip it over, and we've got Tough Gnarl. You pulled out your copy of Ball Hog or Tugboat, uh, which has this song on and a cover of it. It's got Jay Mascus and Steve, Shelley on drums, Lee Ronaldo Thurston and Nels Klein on guitars, epic soundtracks on tambourine, Petra Hayden on get on violin, and Carla Bazulich on vocals. Yep. Here's a Watt quote. Tough Gnarl is a classic rock and roll lyric, like Tutti Frutti. It's his favorite track from the album, and apparently it had cut-up lyrics, like William S. Burroughs style, like Fatal Erections, Hard Tit Killer Fucks. Yeah, apparently Thurston cut up lyrics from his killer fanzine there were record and concert reviews in it and he and he cut that those reviews up and turned them into lyrics apparently one of the reviews he did was on that virginia hardcore band iron cross and he called them a quote tough gnarl surely to offend all douchebags and legend legend has it i guess that tough gnarl is from that uh, record review from Thurston's Killer fanzine. There you go. Okay, track two, Pacific Coast Highway. Kim specifically talks about this one in her book. A twisted love story about hitchhiking up to Malibu and getting picked up by a sociopath. It was a direct pull from the fears of my teenage years when I was focused on the lore surrounding Charles Manson. You know, come on, get in the car. Let's go for a drive somewhere. I won't hurt you. You make me feel so crazy. Uh, This is the one where you can hear Steve hitting some metal sheets to great effect. Yep. Jake Cole says Steve brings a Dale Crover-esque walloping sludge to this one. Interesting. It's cool how it morphs into a really pretty middle section with some great guitar interplay, but then shifts back to the menacing part. Okay, track three, Hot Wire My Heart, written by Johnny Strike. Uh, This is by the band Crime, a cover. Formed in San Francisco in 1976, this track is off of their first single, 1976's Killer Double A-Side, with Baby You're So Repulsive as the other track. They were the first U.S. punk band to release an independent record on their Crime music label. Hmm. It's pretty cool that they cover this, probably led some people to the band Crime, which is a good thing. 
they play it on the Live in Yugoslavia album on their Bandcamp page. Um, and they were also closing shows with a Ramones set, Loudmouth, I Don't Want to Walk Around With You, Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World, and Beat on the Brat. Stevie calls this classic, scuzzy rock and roll of a 70s CBGB vintage, affirming the group's punk credentials. I got into the band Crime through Ugly Things magazine, actually. Hmm. He was a, he, in a very, very early uh, edition of Ugly Things, he did a big article about them. I can't remember how I got in. I think I found out about them at just like a record store. Nothing major. Okay, track four, Cotton Crown with two Ks, later spelled Cotton Crown with Cs on later pressings. Stevie Chick calls this an elegant, wasted duet, possesses a hazy, opiated glide akin to the Velvet's first album. Yeah, for sure. It's a duet with Kim and Thurston. Pretty cool how Kim and Thurston are panned hard right and left. Here's Alec with its oblique Christ-like imagery and haunting melody it makes for an apt coda to Sonic Youth's first successful front-to-back foray into the realm of pop songs. Always really loved this song. They're, they later on released a 7-inch on their own Sonic Death label, which is like their official bootleg label, live at Town & Country in London in June of 87, so right after this came out, and the B-side is Pacific Coast Highway. Okay, and then we end off with White Cross. On the Hold That Tiger live recording, Thurston kind of announces this song as the Big Black Reunion theme song. Here's Jake from the blog. The closer is as much Gordon's song as the guitarist's. Her bass mixed right up front so that her trills punch through the center and send Moore and Ronaldo spiraling off to the sides. It's here that Gordon and Shelley established themselves as the finest rhythm section of the 80s underground, the ultimate bedrock for the band's post-punk roar. Here's Stevie. The venomous clatter echoing Bad Moon Rising in its horror movie ambience and chainsaw guitars bringing the album to an ear-ringing dazed close they also talk in the interview disc about plans to make a video for this track with live footage and savage pencil drawings over top savage pencil is an english comics artist he did some artwork on lee's from here to infinity record so we talked about him before i don't think this video happened though on the screaming fields of sonic love DGC comp that I talked about before that came out in 94, which was kind of my gateway to the older Sonic Youth stuff, had a big impact on me. Uh, it only has Cotton Crown and Beauty Lies in the Eye on it. And then as we mentioned, the DGC reissue adds the Master Dick song, which we'll be getting to in about 20 episodes on SST 155. Yep. There's some interesting stuff with the artwork. Should we talk about that? Yeah, man. Kim in her book says... A loose collage of images that each band member individually chose. In the downtown art world, appropriation was so commonplace, which is why we felt this was an acceptable approach. By collecting those images, we believed we were creating something new out of them. Among them was a Richard Avedon photo of a prepubescent girl and an image of Disney's Magic Kingdom. When Avedon threatened to sue us, Followed by Disney's legal department, we responded by subsequently blocking out the offending images. 
a reminder forever that we'd been censored by people who had more money to spend on lawyers than we did. I think in the interview, Steve mentions that the birthday party's Bad Seed EP uh, influenced this. It kind of has two covers. There's no real clear front or back. The SST LP has the cows on the front, and the SST cassette has the Disney and the dogs on the front. The liner notes say, cover photos from public domain jacked from Sonic Matrix. Here's Lee. We couldn't come up with one single idea from one of us that was liked by all of us, so we ended up using a collage. Somehow it really fit that album. It's really one of my favorite covers because it shows the multiplicity that Sonic Youth is all about. The inner sleeve features all the lyrics, except for Hot Wire in My Heart, in a cut-up style similar to Evol's liners typewritten and heavily Xeroxed. Yeah, Steve mentioned that the postcard of the Madonna Hotel was from him. Apparently, Lee Ronaldo supplied the shot of the the little kid. It's his two-year-old son, Cody. Ronaldo also provided the Avedon shot. Thurston provided the the Disney one. And yeah, they got sued and had to black it out, so... I actually, I mean, I look, <laughs> I looked it up and I was like, man, what is the big deal? But I don't yeah. know. I think that that's what, that's what Kim's getting at, right? About just how you can make something new out of collage and it's so lame that they got sued for this. Yeah. The DGC version put a barcode over the Disney thing. What else is on there? A shooting star or comet underneath the, the Disney yeah. thing? couple of dogs a couple of dogs it looks like they're painted maybe a nearly naked woman on a cabin like a cabin floor or something it reminds me of the lung leg photo from evol they use that image a lot in promo for the album like with captions like have you ever seen your sister naked looks like something from a richard kern movie anyways and then the hotel room with the words sister lp scrolled over top The top left is the Richard Avedon photo, which was later blacked out. Uh, Apparently, her name is Sandra Bennett. She was 12 years old from Rocky Ford, Colorado. It was taken on August 13, 1980, and is part of his American West series, Portraits of Carnies and Mm. Coal Miners. What's that thing with the triple X there? Is that a compass? It doesn't look like a compass to me. It looks like some sort of... uh astronomy type tool i don't know but it could also be some sort of medical instrument don't know uh what looks like maybe some loading docks or something a picture of saturn yeah uh the postcard of like some small town downtown this is where they call themselves the sonic youth sister at the top the small sst logo bottom right the lp has another toddler and a woman's barely covered breasts on one of the labels like they're just about to start or just finished breastfeeding maybe. And they also started using the Sonic Life cross around this time. There's a thank you list. It's They say, yay, verily. Suzanne Sasek, who uh, is credited as Goddess of Light. She was their lighting director. Dan Graham, Rock My Religion. He's an artist and sometimes Sonic Youth collaborator. Mike Watt, The Softest Hammer. Jay Maskus dinosaur guitar lydia l beauty line that would be lydia lunch 
a mandolin sonic taxscape. <laughs> Maybe they're... They're lawyers. Their yeah, tax accountant. Some writers, James Elroy, Raymond Carver, Lyle Heisen, drummer nice. from Hell, and yes. also from Das Domin. P.K. Dick, the owl in the daylight. Richard Kern, Evol 2. And then it says... Soul Fuck, S-O-L-F-U-K, which apparently they tossed around as a name for the album. Special thanks to the kids at SST, Blast First, and Ecstatic Peace, which is Thurston's label. Special thanks, Terry Pearson. Terry was the part owner of the Continental Club in Austin, Texas, and future Sonic Youth tour tech. No dead wax, Ryan, that I could see. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't look it up, but it's not on my CD either. <laughs> ballot result yeah man ballot result what are your favorites the first two tracks really yeah. but but in particular i got a catholic block like i was rocking out to that track that was that's the one i won on my compilation tape but it, you know you're the bigger sonic youth fan and i would totally defer to you no problem I like all these songs, man. I could pick all of them. My favorites are Cotton Crown, Tough Gnarl, Beauty Lies in the Eye, uh, Schizophrenia, but I can go with I Got a Catholic Block. I like them all. Cool, let's do that. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, it's like a blast from the past. We haven't had this band on for a long time. It's SST 135, the Always August record, Largeness with Holes. Uh, and we've got a special guest. Yeah, Tim Harding's on the show. Nice. Yeah, because there is yeah. nothing out there on this record. So thank goodness we've got Tim. Yeah, and hey, thanks to Steve for being our guest. It was great having Steve on the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.